Do members of a band need to be on the same page politically to be able to play together? What is the role, if any, of oppositional musical aesthetics, whether it be through heavy metal, hip-hop or house, in music's capacity to be politically meaningful? Was Woodstock worth the hype? And why does urban geography matter in all of this? To help us answer these questions and more, I'm honoured to welcome our next guest in this music and politics miniseries, Jason Miles. Jason is a US-American podcaster, musician and essayist, now based in another part of the Americas, namely Mexico. He is the host of the very successful This Is Revolution podcast. Jason's writing is featured in Sublation magazine, most often in the form of critiques of the left and left culture from the left. Most importantly, perhaps for the context of this conversation, Jason is a member of the Oakland-based band Bitter Lake. On its Bandcamp page, Bitter Lake is described as the voice of unheard masses against the neoliberal corporate oligarchy that oppress the demos. The sounds of revolution are brought forth with a groovy dissonance that not only moves the pit, but moves the soul. You're hearing some of Jason's and Bitter Lake's music in this episode today. listening to the sound of solidarity brought to you by solidarity we're a revolutionary socialist group in australia and if you'd like to find out more about us our website is solidarity.net.au i'm tommy gadir and i'm recording this episode on unceded wurundjeri land in nam or melbourne So welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Tammy, for having me. I'm pretty excited. Uh, I don't get to talk about music unless I um, unless we have some sort of dead day on the show and I can invite a music friend on and have a fun music discussion. So I appreciate this very much. Awesome. Right after we finish this recording, uh, mm-hmm. You and your co-host are going to be interviewing the presidential candidate for the Green Party, Dr. Cornell yep. West. Yes. And yes, Dr. West actually is wrote a musician. Piece about. Right. <laughs> he is a musician. He's a. I think he's trying to come out with a house album. Uh, I don't think I'm going to ask that question. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and read the questions that patrons have. Pascal has a series of things that he's been wanting to say to Dr. West for some time. Uh, They actually have met at at left forums maybe six, seven years ago. I think they've they've come across each other. And and I believe Dr. West does know Pascal's writings for Black Agenda Report. So it should actually make for a pretty interesting uh, discussion. But I will just be there as a more tech support role than as uh, an interlocutor. Yes, I'd heard about the house connection, actually. As a dance music person, I was quite fascinated by that. Um, But I'll have to follow that up later. Um, So, 
This is Revolution podcast was initially a music podcast and now you have interviews in your archive on all kinds of topics from culture to politics with people such as Adolf Reed Jr., Norman Finkelstein, the late Mike Davis, uh, Gerald Horn, Andreas Malm and Chris Smalls to list a few names that people may recognise. Can you tell listeners a bit about how it evolved from a music podcast to a podcast about something much, much bigger? Of course, the origin story. Um, so I was in a band called Bitter Lake. Uh, I, I, I'm still in a band called Bitter Lake. Um, Bitter Lake, for the most part, is me and kind of the drummer, uh, my good friend Alex Miller. Um, it started from I was in a group for about seven years. Most of the posters you see behind me are, are from that band uh, with my ex called Le Fin Absolu du Monde weird trippy electronic uh music electronic experimental kind of industrial metal stuff i don't know some people say we created a genre i'll let you decide but anyway that ended extremely abruptly and so uh i wanted to play music a little different than what we did with lafin because it was just the two of us so we had like electronic drums and program drums and stuff like that and a lot of programmed orchestral elements so i wanted to do something a little different so i taught myself the drums i locked myself in a room for a few weeks and and could be kind of proficient enough on the drums and, and recorded a bunch of songs and then recruited some of my very good friends to to help me out you know also i guess to, to pull back a little bit more i lived for years inside of a rehearsal recording studio in west oakland california if your viewers are familiar with the movie sorry to bother you uh, a lot of that was was a lot of sets were built there there was some filming actually of the studio um in that movie so it was a place where you could be really really loud at all hours of the night and I, my room at that time and, and because my ex and I did music together, we wired everything to to be ready to record at the drop of a dime. So if we had an idea at four in the morning, she'd be like, dude, I got an idea for a riff. And she could just <laughs> get it out whenever. Um, so we had went on some some tours early on. We didn't tour as hard as LaFin did. LaFin, we were out about 100 days a year uh, internationally. And then... Better like toured less. We did do some international touring. And then when we came back from our last tour, big tour we did, uh, can US and Canada, um, we had been toying around with the idea of doing a podcast because we we lived in this or I lived in this space where literally all of my musical heroes, kind of all the band's musical heroes, were just coming through the hallways at all at all times. Um, I actually lived in Third Eye Blind's old room. Uh, Orion Salazar from Third Eye Blind actually played bass on the last LeFin record. Um, so getting to know these people really well and having these kind of behind the curtain conversations where you could sneak in you know, some some political discussion, I thought was a great idea. The band did not see it the same way. I mean, I think they just wanted to do music, you know, maybe at best show some footage of us recording or something but i was like nobody cares about seeing people they don't know but let's 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 show this great environment that we live in and they weren't as sanguine as my co-host would say about the idea and so it just left me alone um bringing in friends um 
there was a, if you listen to the early, early episodes, I mean, you can hear people like walking in the door. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, I heard you got so-and-so over here. I just wanted to come in for the interview. So it was the, the party atmosphere that you still kind of get from the show was always there from, from the, the onset, because that's something that I always um, wanted to do, have this kind of fun discussion with friends that can get deep and of course, meaningful. Um, and that's where this is revolution comes from. It's a lyric in the song from a, from bitter Lake. Uh, originally this show was called sound waves because I lived in Soundwave studios and a friend who actually is the person that kind of redesigned everything for me said, this show has gone way beyond you just talking about music. This is definitely something much more, much more important. And there's a lyric you have in your song. I think you should call the show that. And, and that's where we are now four years later. Uh, I think I recall an episode where you interviewed um, someone from the Electronic Intifada, Nora. Nora, Nora Barrows-Freeman. We all went to high school together, yeah. Right, and I remember that yeah. there were comings and goings in, in that episode yeah. of people coming yeah. in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. to give you an idea, like people tease me about the high school I went to. So Nora was, was on the show and a good friend of mine who just did a stadium run with Chappelle uh, Chris Riggins is his name. He's a comedian, hilarious man, and very good friend. Um, just he had heard Nora uh, coming was coming on, and so he like turned around in his car and like came back. You know, bum rushed the show. If you if you must. can you talk a little bit about what your work as a musician has looked like? What do you play? Where do mm-hmm. you play? Or where did you used to play when yeah. you played more? And um, where can people find your music? Um, you can find it anywhere. Uh, for years, my ex and I put our music up everywhere. We were signed to a small label out of Boise. I think it was the last deal we had. Oh, what were they called? Wicked Wonderland Records. Um, I think I still owe them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, and and so the music was everywhere, um, which is why I can't use that music on my show. You know, the copyright. And then uh, Bitter Lake stuff, originally we would put it on Spotify. And then as the show got bigger and I wanted to use Bitter Lake stuff on the show and that was getting hit with copyright strikes on stuff, I literally played everything on. I literally wrote. I just stopped releasing everything on on like the Spotify medium and uh, just put it on Bandcamp or SoundCloud where just get it and listen to it for free. If you If you'd like to buy it, you can. Um, I play guitar, I play bass, uh, I play drums, I play synth, I program orchestral movements as well. So when we were back from that tour, when I was still working on the show, the we were supposed to do a tour of the Northwest, which was going to lead us to some more U.S. touring. And, you know, the shelter in place happened in the States or North America for the most part. The world shut down, as you know, and then we couldn't do it. So. I stayed inside and just started just banging out music as much as I could. And not everything I wanted to do was going to be like super heavy and aggro. I I had this kind of want to make um, more, I guess you would say chill stuff. I don't know if there's a genre for it. I I think there's a genre for it, but I don't know the name. And um, I can't just put the guitar down. Because sometimes I'll make all this stuff with like really cool synth parts and then um, and I don't change the tuning of my guitar. So if you're a musician, um, my guitar is tuned to drop F sharp. So it's really low tuning mm-hmm. and special strings for it. And 
I felt like that over some of this chill music I was making was like really, really cool. So I just sat in a room and I, and I made all this stuff. We, we mixed it. My, my drummer and I uh, mixed it all and didn't know how we were going to release it because we thought no one was going to care. So we just kind of saved it for a while. And then with the success of the show, which started off as just an audio only thing and then became video later. I had two albums worth of material and we decided to, or I decided to release it um, as the show got more successful. And that now I just kind of release I, on my birthday, I released two albums, hmm. um, coronavirus sessions, part one and two. And then um, on Christmas now I release an EP <laughs> every every Christmas of stuff that I've used for various things with the show. You know, we used to make these video intros that were like super, you know, kind of Adam Courtesy about what the show was going to be about. The guys definitely made me stop doing it because mm. they were like, this is too much for you to do. Um, but they made me do more video essay stuff. They're like, do more of this video essay stuff where you put more together. So a lot of the music that I make um, was made for for that stuff. It's kind of a score for a video essay. So releasing that music as well. Um, and I and I have plans to do some more recording um, later this year because I have to get the you know the next Christmas you know part three has to come out. To what extent has your music work intersected with your politics and activism, and mm. have all of the people that you have? played or collaborated with been similarly socialist or socialist leaning? And does this matter to you? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I've been doing music. I was telling a friend that's staying with me, uh, the first paid gig I got, I was 16 years old. Wow. So I've been doing, and I'll, I'll be 46 uh, next month. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing this stuff for a while. Um, no, I don't think you have to have, um, like-minded individuals, depending on what you want to do. I remember once uh, we were on tour with LaFin and we ran into the band Crowbar. We were playing one of those venues. I'm sure you have them where you're from, where there's like a big room and a smaller room. And sometimes there's two shows at the same time. Mm -hmm. So Crowbar was on tour with a bunch of other metal bands. And one of the members in Crowbar is in a band with a guy named Phil Anselmo. Phil Anselmo is a very outspoken lead singer of a band called Pantera. He's been known to say some extremely racist things. So the Kurt Weinstein from Crowbar, kind of the main guy behind Crowbar, was in our room for whatever reason. I think he just wanted some peace. So he's in our room and he's wearing a shirt of my friend's band. And I walk over to him and I'm like, hey, I know those guys are good friends. And then we got into a very good conversation and um, laughed for about an hour and exchanged phone numbers. And at that moment, I was like, I don't think this guy's like as racist as his buddy. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe all birds of a feather, you know, don't flock flock together. And especially the band that we were talking about that we knew in common, you know, had black people in it. So no, I don't think you have to. Does it help to a certain degree? I guess. But then that comes more into about branding, in my opinion, and not about whatever message it is you're trying to get across. I mean, I have, if, you're, if you've seen the show, I definitely have my opinions about a certain revolutionary capacity of music. I think it can go along with the movement. I don't know if it would necessarily start one or lead to one. 
So, you know, Bitter Lake, no, we're not all on the same page politically, but we can all sit in the same van for months at a time, not fight, understand what injustice looks like. And I think none of us have to wear kind of a badge of, of how we feel politically. And I know that those dudes kind of all support me um, in, in what I'm trying to do uh, with my writing and with the show and everything. So would I call them all socialists or, or even leftists? No, maybe apolitical, but they have no problem with what we're trying to say because they kind of understand the importance of some of these words we're trying to say solidarity, what we're talking about, you know, right now, which was the message every night when we close out on stage, it's always a message of solidarity. So you lived and worked in Oakland, California, and for the benefit of the listeners on uh, our side of the Pacific Ocean, can you tell us a little bit of general background about Oakland as a city and how your experiences living and working there in general and as a musician impacted on your political perspectives? Oh, oh greatly. You know, Oakland is a working class town. It's, I don't want to say it's in the shadow of San Francisco. It's across a bridge from San Francisco, which is the metropolitan Mecca that, you know, most people know. Um, if you say the Bay Area, most people just think of San Francisco and that's fine. I, I think most of us that are from Oakland don't, don't really mind that. Oakland is definitely much larger than San Francisco. Um, but Oakland also is, you know, was one of the last stops in the great migration West for black people leaving the Jim Crow South. Mm. So it has a history of having, uh, a large population of, uh, black people that wanted a better, you know, that were leaving for a better world, if you will. You know, these are refugees, um, from a very oppressive system. So this is also the birthplace of people like the black Panthers. So that's always been in the backyard and, you know, kind of always been almost in the soul of the city, if you will, as corny as that might sound, but it does influence, you know, the way I see the world because I also went to a high school filled with like hippies kids kind of pushing back against the establishment um, was ingrained in my, my classmates. And then, you know, we would always be kind of adjacent to some Panthers so, you know, that's going to have a massive influence on the way you see the world. And then musically, Oakland has has a soul to it. And that's why you have so much funk music that comes out of Oakland as well in the Bay Area in general. You know, bands like Tower of Power that would come in studio. And then, you know, the, the early days of hip hop, that was a little different from what you know about like Run DMC with groups like Digital Underground and stuff like that. Tony Tony Tony's from Oakland. Um, of course, MC Hammer's from Oakland. In Vogue is from Oakland. I got to you know, meet some of those people and their influence, that Oakland soulful influence is not lost on anything I do, despite the fact that it is very aggressive. Mm. So just to give you some perspective. Yeah. So I lived in a place called the Lower Bottoms mm -hmm. of Oakland, of West Oakland. And it really is like the bottom. The, it's the last stop before the bridge that connects that's I think it's like a seven mile bridge that connects you with San Francisco and um, the homeless encampment that was across the street from us got so massive it went from like four little tiny homes to I think it was like 300 people 
living in various ramshackle creations across the street. And there was a song that was very much inspired by the way I felt living in this place. I was living in a warehouse I wasn't supposed to live in. So there's not much separating our precarious existences, Mm. you know, um, called rats. And we were going to do a video for it. And we thought, okay, well maybe we'll get a shot of the encampment. And then, as we were thinking about it more and more, I was like, you know, that feels just gross and exploitive. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just go say we're going to do a video, but literally just talk to the people and, and just have them talk and hear what they have to say about anything. And rat food is something, sorry. And so we made three parts to it because we got so many good, you know, interviews and you barely hear the song in it. Because it's more about this this world that is across the street from us and this this kind of population that gets forgotten that politicians love using, but um, they're not a very powerful block uh, of, of, of people because most of them can't vote and they can't donate to, to political campaigns. So we wanted to give this population kind of a voice to speak for itself. And I still do on the show because the camp sadly got swept um a couple months ago but we would do shows with with the wood street encampment as much as i could just just to so people would understand the complexities of their story i'm from the east bay so i was born in oakland i grew up in a city adjacent to oakland called richmond california which is like a smaller more violent (laughs) section near oakland Mm -hmm. and that gave me a certain foundation, but what also shapes the way I view the world is the fact that I got to go out and see not the entire world, but a lot of it. And, you know, it definitely puts class into perspective mm. and um, I mean, definitely racism still exists, but I think a lot of us are blind to certain issues of class. We make them issues of race and to see, you know, entirely white areas of the United States where poor white people had the same problems that I have in, in Oakland. They hate police the same way and they hate this the same way. And it's like, Oh, okay. This is, that was, that was interesting for me to actually see firsthand because where I'm from, I never really saw it to that level. Mm. Certain musical genres and styles are associated with, or have the aesthetics of oppositional politics uh, mm-hmm. And you and your co-host, Pascal Robert, along with interviewees you've had on, such as Touré Reid, have presented some really interesting critical perspectives on this that I have never heard in academic popular music studies. Would you mind outlining some of these perspectives for people who have, like myself, internalised a kind of understanding of, say, hip-hop as something that emerged out of working class black communities <laughs> who made music on the streets of the Bronx or LA um, yeah. and who challenged the political status quo through their lyrics and music stylistic choices. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And I'm sure our listeners would as well. Wow. You really want me to get in double trouble today since I tweeted out uh, Ice Cube and Karis One. What did you tweet out? Well, uh, Ice Cube... Uh, recently did something with Tucker Carlson where him and Tucker Carlson were like riding around in a car in South Central Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And of course, KRS-One did uh, a rap endorsing uh, Eric Adams, the 
pro-police, very neoliberal mayor of New York City. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we say on, on our show that, hip, and we're not the first people to say this, but hip hop is kind of the soundtrack to neoliberalism. And it's, it's a nice romantic story to think that all of it is grown out of either, you know, smash and grab robberies from the, from the 1977 blackout of New York or like strictly working class backgrounds. But what did working class backgrounds look like, you know, in, in the seventies, like you still had to have equipment, like not every piece of equipment for that, that starts the genre is stolen, you know, early on in the genre, some of the bigger names actually rapped about going to college, you know, they come from middle-class, most of the larger names, from the golden age of hip hop actually come from middle-class backgrounds. And these aren't anything to be ashamed of. It's just that underclass ideology kind of undergirds the way we understand quote black music. You know, we're not talking about Delta blues here. We're talking about electronic music that doesn't use acoustic instrumentation. So it's almost foolish to think that um, people are just like making samplers in their backyard. Like, no, there was, this is, new technology everybody's you know messing with like the 808 drum machine was relatively new i think the first time it's used in recorded music is like blondie so how do these guys have access to this stuff it's gonna be super expensive at the time you know romantically we might want to believe that they're using some sort of illegal means to get it all and that's not the case with everybody so you know hip-hop is not just the music of the poor and working class. It's also the music of, you know, it's kind of like the rise of, of black cinema in the seventies. Um, you know, that comes from filling a need. You had all these abandoned theaters in urban areas. You have a burgeoning black middle-class that actually has some buying power. So media is created to meet that need. Hip hop met a need and the people that tell the story kind of have a bit of a romanticized version of the story. Like we really think about it as like really fighting back against something. And then when you start to pull back the curtain, you're like, okay, well, what was it really fighting back against? Most people will say like racism. You can say, okay, I guess, but what did racism look like in 1985? We're not talking about 1965. Jim Crow America is gone. Right. You know, the cover of, of, of Ebony Magazine in 73 was talking about the new black middle class. In 87, there's a huge new black middle class. So what are we what are we pushing back against in the in the huxtable 80s um, with with hip hop? Police violence, sure, to a certain extent, but you know, what really changed? It existed before then. There were songs about it before then. There was movements, real movements to try to curtail it, not you know, songs that just said, don't shoot each other. So no, I don't, I don't really think that uh, sonically hip hop is revolutionary. We cannot deny that. There was nothing that was going to sound like that, but it is born out of disco and, and a certain culture that existed within disco as well. A large PA system. On, on a similar note, in one of your essays, Remembering Woodstock 99, you mm. say that 
Woodstock, like most popular culture, was always a business that sought to cash in on, quote, rebellion and acted as a, quote, template for the iconic and profitable music festivals of today. Yes. Is it fair to say that you're quite critical of the ways that popular music cultures of all kinds, regardless of how ostensibly commercial or mainstream they are, tend to embrace and do the work of capital? Mm. Yes. Woodstock for me. So I don't know, you know, Netflix is different everywhere in the world. So I don't know if you guys got this. And there was this Netflix documentary about Woodstock 99. Yeah, we got that. Okay. That documentary angered me. (laughs) Not because I was a fan of the music of Woodstock 99, you know, quite the opposite. It angered me because, first of all, it made me write a defense of that music. (laughs) But it angered me because it was an unfair portrayal of what what is kind of the last gasp of, of baby boomer greatness, which is Woodstock. And the idea that this was the great generation. And Woodstock 99 is supposed to embody the failures of Generation X. Like this is the generation that cared not. They cared not so much that we just call them X. And they were just about destruction and mayhem. And we don't look at Woodstock 69 in the same way. There is a libertarian streak that runs through the the hippie mindset that we never talk about. It's it's very much about oneself, right? the spiritual quest for peace for oneself. They just happened to be adjacent to a lot of things at the same time, right? They were adjacent to black power and civil rights. They're adjacent to, you know, civil rights movements of women and native Americans and Chicano Americans at the same time. You can even say gay rights to a certain extent, LGBTQ rights. Um, But it doesn't mean that that, movement inherently also anti-war it doesn't mean that they were all about those things the same way we'd like to imagine them being all about those things uh the same time you have woodstock you have the um a birth control pill so there were rapes at the first woodstock we never talk about it i believe there was like four reported in 69 it's a very different time for women to feel comfortable to come forward about these, these acts of violence. Um, there was almost an implied yes. Uh, one one uh, feminist wrote some time ago in talking about Woodstock that it was a lot harder for women to say no post the pill, she felt. And there was tons of damage done. Um, it was always a cash grab. Woodstock. It was never supposed to be this magical moment. It was just a failure at all ends from 69 to 99 for 30 years. These guys failed so miserably at putting festivals together. The failures of 99 give you the success of Coachella, which financially was a failure the first year because it it comes out in 99. But the, the plat map, of how to keep things moving, keep people engaged with other things while bands aren't playing to the point where music festivals are not about music. It's about being there. 
But that comes from the selling of Woodstock. Remember, financial failure. What helps them break even? The fact that there was a movie crew there recording everything and the movie comes out about it. So the story of Woodstock becomes way more important than Woodstock itself. Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner is maybe playing to like 10,000 people. Everybody left. They rarely show the shot of the crowd because there's so much trash. There is something to be said about, you know, more economic factors that led people to be able to be willing to do more. You know, um, we had Fred Hampton's lawyers on the show and, and, towards the end they were also the lawyers for like uh the weathermen and, and most of the panthers and towards the end of the show it was dawning on me that this moment can never happen again where two guys fresh out of law school just past the bar can just go to chicago and defend people that they believe are fighting for a greater cause you can't have a Bernie Sanders marching with King, you know, going from New York to go to the South to to do these marches because he's got student debt. How can you afford his rent? You know, there's no job waiting for him when he comes back that's going to be able to afford him to a house. So, or just shelter. So it feels like that moment is kind of gone. So I understand on one hand why people want to say this is the last great generation. And I also understand why people want to hate on them to no end. I, I, I get the whole thing. Um, but looking at Woodstock is like the last great concert of all time. It was, it was a cluster F <laughs> had the state not intervened. It would have been worse. You know, they had a helicopter people out that were, that had a heat stroke. It was it was a disaster. Uh, well, I re- definitely recommend listeners list, uh, read your essay on it because it's it's a really great one. I'll I'll soon be interviewing uh, a public intellectual and author from over here called Jeff Sparrow on his 2018 book No Way But This in Search of Paul Robeson. Uh, and there's an anecdote in that book that. Robeson's political socialist consciousness was solidified in the moment when he encountered the songs of Welsh miners while they marched. And there was something about the affective force of large numbers of obviously only men at the time um, singing their hearts out for their fellow workers who were being injured and dying, you know, in these terrible mining disasters. There was something about that that galvanized him and gave him a sense of the international workers' struggle as something to fight for. Um, is this something that you relate to in terms of having had the ability to tour internationally? Um, have you had musical experiences that have done something like this for you in terms of activating your sense of, I have to do something? Yeah. Um, not to that level, but we... The last tour we went on was was kind of an odd one for us because we were in spaces that didn't have a lot of. We toured with a band that had a more I don't want to well, it was just a different audience, and um and there were places that we played there like you are the first um heteros cis het males that ever have been <laughs> through these doors and and played because you're on tour with this band we're gonna let you guys play 
And so these, these identity struggles, I felt lacked a certain amount of solidarity. And so to end each night to remind people of what solidarity means was extremely important. And we kind of had this, this end riff that we would do that was almost like going to a black church <laughs> where you, you just break stuff down. It was to remind people that we're kind of all in it together and it would move people emotionally some nights because again, we were in places that they weren't expecting to see us. And for me personally, that's important with what I do, but that's me. I can't, I can't put that on everybody that wants to do music. I know some people just want to have fun. I get that. When it comes to music in contemporary popular culture, it's Mm. by its definition, a commodity. And Mm. in that sense, it's, obviously different from the Welsh miners songs. Um, But considering this, how do you think something like hip hop or metal or hardcore could uh, meaningfully contribute to political work without being absorbed entirely by the pressures of the system of which they're a part, considering they're bought and sold as part of a marketplace? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Oh, that's a good question. I'll I'll try to be as honest as possible and not sugarcoat anything. I've finally got to a point that I don't have a certain stress around me when putting music out. When I was doing stuff more so with my, my band, with my ex, because we literally lived off playing a hundred and some shows a year and traveling and seeing music and selling merchandise. We still didn't try to make popular music because we didn't really know how um we kept doing our own thing and hope that it would catch on bigger i don't know it's hard to not get caught up because let's use the rage against the machine example we could use public enemy as an example we use those two artists who eventually worked together um after their bands kind of disbanded for for some time and when you see rage against the machine all of their iconography is of communism. They literally did a video with Shining Path in it. It was questionable at best to having Shining Path in your video, right? And people stealing, you know, not for the some sort of socialist cause. It's just, there was so much FU mom energy in that music that it was so easy to, to misinterpret. You know, when Paul Ryan says that Rage Against the Machine is one of his favorite bands, that doesn't surprise me because even if you're listening to the lyrics, it just sounds like you're throwing a middle finger to the establishment at large. Right. And that is also part of like the hippie thing. There was never really a greater critique. It was just a lot of middle fingers thrown at the establishment. So you just kind of become anti-establishment. There's a reason why so many boomers become staunch conservatives in the 80s because listen to Rush Limbaugh yell, <laughs> listen to Abby Hoffman yell. It's just anti-establishment yelling. And you can get behind the government sucks because you kind of understand that already. Public Enemy 
you know, at best are black nationalists, which aren't necessarily anti-capitalists. So you listen to that music and we want to think that it's much greater than it is, but you know, how many people listen to fear of a black planet and they work on wall street right now, or they work in finance in, in some capacity. It's silly to think that, you know, everyone that listened to that music went and, and fought the power, so to speak. So I, I asked this to um, one of the previous guests in this mini series on music and politics, and I'll probably ask it of the others that follow you. For those concerned about movement building and organizing around social justice and class struggle overall, do you think that cultural activities such as music matter? Or do you think that they're distractions from real political work or just nice things to do on our days off or worse, that they might even be demobilizing? It can be. It doesn't have to be. And you have to have a real serious talk with the people you're doing, whatever you're doing with. If you're trying to organize and you want to have like a concert to bring people out for awareness raising, sure. It's one thing. It's one way to get people out, right? To get your message out. But when awareness raising becomes the only thing you do, and it's like constant concerts about awareness raising, then is this really about awareness raising and building cadre? Or is it about, you know, having concerts and building a fan base? Sometimes it's hard to get that, that real honest answer. You know, I know Boots Riley, I believe he really wanted to have a successful music career and be an agitator he is a legit communist to the core ever since he's had a deal and he's never really was that huge for music so you know his political background as far as being like an organizer is real he he's not just striking in hollywood because everybody else is doing it like he understands hollywood's role in this labor uprising that we're seeing globally. And if you even listen to him talk, he's always talking about not just Hollywood, but about labor in general, because that's the world he comes from. He comes from an activist family. He didn't make the Hollywood move. He's still in the Bay Area. He's still doing his stuff in the Bay Area. I'm happy to see the success he's had. And I love the fact that he's able to do the type of films and TV shows that he's able to do. But we also have to say, is it dangerous if, you, if you're if you getting the green light and the funding? And I, I don't have an answer for that question. I really don't know. I think power doesn't really care anymore because we're so easily pacified. A few years ago, four or five years ago, we had the Joker where Todd Phillips says the only way I can make a movie about neoliberalism was to make a superhero movie. And it took him years of negotiation with DC because they didn't want, you know, to harm the Joker's story. And you have the Joker and you have a movie like Parasite, Mm. a foreign film about class that wins an Oscar for best picture in the States that everyone talks about. That's followed up with Squid Games, which is about class, which 
has there's another movie in Spain called The Platform, which comes out around the same time about class divides. But they are kind of all in the same way that there is no alternative. And we don't really rally around the vision beyond. We see the story, we shake our heads at the sadness, and then it's like, well, this is just what it is. Snowpiercer, great movie about class, Mm -hmm. becomes a TV show. And at some point, you kind of miss the message in it all. And because you're not presented with another alternative, it's just another show to make you go, hmm, this is interesting. You know, Boots is on a Virgo. I watched the last episode of that and with my mouth open, like you are just really (laughs) just telling the whole capitalism, why it sucks story, how it functions story. And someone greenlit it because they're like, so this is good entertainment. And sadly, that's the way a lot of people see stuff like this. Now I'm not foolish enough. Someone like boots, is going to just throw a movie out and walk away. He's going to constantly try to promote it. And he definitely builds around it. Um, even locally out there in the streets locally. So I know this is a tool for someone like that, but for most people, you know, what do we get from Bernie Sanders from the more high profile people in his campaign? Brianna Joy Gray's got a show. Davis Road has got a show. A lot of people didn't go back into politics. They into podcasting. Mm. You know, because we're in a different moment where people that feel they can affect the world are doing it through media and not through the political sphere. The revolution isn't going to get started because I have a show. You know what I mean? My my show was not designed for that. It was designed to kind of be part education, part entertainment, political awareness. I think there are greater conversations that we need to have, greater understandings that we need to have. There's just figures that we don't talk about in history. Um, You know, in, in Black America, we don't talk about Paul Robeson. Do you think people don't talk about Paul Robeson because it's too far in the past? Or do you think they don't talk about Paul Robeson because he was... Like, because it's inconvenient because he was also associated with the USSR. I'm just curious. I don't even think it's the USSR Association. Mm -hmm. I think that the history of Paul Robeson isn't one that is looked at the same way of the history of like Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. Right. Jackie Robinson is the first black baseball player and we hold him in such a high regard. And I don't know if Paul Robeson was the first black Football, I don't, definitely was the first black football player. He was early at the NFL, I believe. But anything that man did, he broke records in. Yeah. Athletically, he, he could act, he could sing, and he was a great spokesperson for socialism. But we don't hold him in the same regard that we hold you know, King and X, because King and X are so easy for powerful people to paint certain narratives around. Like trying to explain to my 24-year-old daughter's 24-year-old boyfriend why why Martin Luther King isn't, you know, some good boy preacher that was a punk. (laughs) And, And, you know, Malcolm X wasn't part of any, you know, 
bloody battles just because if you see a picture of him with a with a gun because i don't apparently there isn't any but martin Luther king had a gun as well um these guys were threatened all the time of course they're gonna have guns it's just silly to think they wouldn't mm-hmm. um but the martin Luther king was part of you know changing legislation mm-hmm. and he felt that the civil rights movement didn't go far enough with the civil rights act and fair housing and he knew we needed a poor people's campaign he was he dies while he's out organizing around a garbage worker strike because garbage workers were literally dying trying to find shelter because they weren't allowed to like hide under certain things when it was raining and they were they were literally dying in the backs of, of trucks and, and that's where you get the i'm a man signs from that's where that was coming from and you know he was trying to build a real campaign around you know el- eliminating poverty Malcolm X probably goes that route if he lives, right? We don't know. We don't know. These people also died really young. But we can we can build these great narratives around them. Like Spike Lee creates the, one of the great man of history myths in his Malcolm X movie, where you come away watching the movie, you think he was like the most powerful man in all of New York. Um, you can say the same thing about Judas and the Black Messiah when it comes to Fred Hampton. Now, again, we don't know what Fred Hampton would have been. He died so young. He was only like 21 years old. He was able to accomplish some interesting things in his short, short time on this planet. But, um, you know, the great man of history myth is extremely problematic. And when we think about people that said great things, you know, let's, let's never try to diminish people that said great things. Paul Robeson isn't very high on the list for the average person because I think he sits in a certain, a certain part of black academia, mm. but he definitely doesn't, doesn't sit in black culture the same way that maybe certain sports icons do because they're not as problematic in the grand scheme of things. Like Jackie Robinson didn't really um, ruffle any feathers, so to speak. Are there any projects that you're working on or anything you'd like to draw the attention of listeners to whether musical or political or otherwise um yeah i i actually have finished my first feature length video essay or documentary called kayfabe it uh, talks about the way in which we consume media consume media kind of the way we consume pro wrestling there's good guys and there's bad guys and we are very intrigued about the drama, the political burlesque. Um, and we don't really have a very good, firm understanding of how a lot of these things work. So that's done, but we are crowdfunding so we can finish the final edits and get the, the animations done for it that, that we have set aside for that. And of course, there's my show. This is Revolution Podcast, which airs Tuesday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and Saturday, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, so early for me. Um, but what I want to do, uh, I should add this, with with Kayfabe, when we're done with it, we're not going to put it up on any platform. Um, I want to take it and screen it, so kind of back to community and building solidarity. Cool. Um, and, and it's not just limited to the continental U.S., um, we've definitely been talking about going over and screening it in Germany, UK. Um, I've never been all my travels. I've never been to Australia. I would love to to go to go uh, stream it there. I'm sure 
it uh, there's a lot of people that would want to see something like this as of course wrestling exists there and and you know i've been reading more and more about your country and, and different things we had a recent show about legalizing uh sex work in thailand so i had to look at the models in your country in New Zealand and did a lot of uh, deep dive research. There's actually some really good academic research on what's going on out there and some of the issues that arise from it. So I would love to do some screenings in the vastness of Australia. Also, um, I'm working on my next paper for sublation, which I call the Mad Max syndrome. We did a show about it. Um, maybe the greatest action flick of the 20th century. Um, some of the greatest chase scenes ever. Mad Max that shot in Australia with an Australian cast. Yep. Um, there's some interesting scenes in that first movie. I went back and watched them all. Not the new remakes, but those, those first three. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said about the way we view justice and vengeance. Um, there's a scene in the first movie where Mel Gibson's character is having a conversation with the captain. And he says, like, the only thing separating me from these uh, lawless hordes of people is this, this badge. And I'm not cool with it. I'm, I'm literally terrorizing the citizens trying to get these bad guys. I'm paraphrasing. And, um, you know, the captain's like, ah, people need heroes, whatever. And he quits. And a revenge thing happens, but um, there is something to be said about kind of these death wish Charles Bronson movies and Mad Max, the first one, or so the sequels, um, revenge movies that kind of captures our imagination of what good people and bad people are and, and uh, how we view justice and the thin line that is justice and Well, thank you so much, uh, Jason Miles, for coming on to our humble podcast. Uh, for anybody who wants to watch the This Is Revolution podcast show, they also have a YouTube channel, so it's visual as well as audio that you can enjoy. Uh, thanks so much, Jason. Hopefully we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much, Jen.